You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. And now, let's unlock the pod. Hello, Nick. Welcome to today's episode. How's it going with you? Hello, Natalia. I'm very well, thank you. I hope you're well. And uh, welcome to listeners to episode 23 of the Security Unlocked podcast. On the pod today, we have Rob McCann, an applied researcher here at Microsoft, working on insider risk management, which is us taking the Security Unlocked podcast into to new territory. We're in, we're in the compliance space now. We are, and so we're definitely interested in feedback. Drop us a note at securityunlocked at microsoft.com to let us know whether these topics interested you, whether there is another avenue you'd like us to go down in compliance. Also, always accepting memes. Cat memes, sort of more specifically. <laughs> All memes or just cat memes? Cat memes, llama memes, alpaca, alpaca memes. memes. Yeah, alpaca. Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, topic. So insider risk and insider risk management is the ability for security teams, for IT teams, for HR to use AI and machine learning and other sort of automation-based tools to identify when an employee or when someone inside your organization might be accidentally doing something that is going to create risk for the company or potentially intentionally, uh, whether they have, you know, nefarious or sort of malicious intent. So a really, really great conversation we have with with Rob about what is insider risk, what are the different types of insider risk, how is uh, AI and ML being used to go tackle it? Yeah, there's an incredible amount of work happening to understand the context because so many of these circumstances require data from different departments, uniquely different departments like HR to try to understand, well, is is somebody about to leave the company? And if so, how is that related to the volume of data that they just downloaded? And with that, on with the pod. On with the pod. Welcome to the Security Unlocked podcast, Rob McCann. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Rob, we'd love to start with a quick intro. Who are you? What do you do? What's your day-to-day look like at Microsoft? What kind of products, what technology do you touch? Give us, a, give us an intro, please. Well, I've been at Microsoft for about 15 years. I am a, I've been an applied researcher the entire time. So what that means is I get to bounce around various products and solve technical challenges. That's the official thing. What it actually means is whatever my boss needs done that's a technical hurdle, uh, they just throw it my way and I have to try to work on that. So applied scientist. Applied scientist versus what's a, what's a different type of scientist? So what, what's the parallel to applied science in this sense? So applied researcher is sort of a dream job. So when I initially started, there's sort of the academic style researcher that it's very much a, your production is to produce papers and new ideas that sort of in a vacuum look good and get those out to the scientific community. I love doing that kind of stuff. I don't so much like just writing papers. And so in applied research, what we get to do is we get to sort of be this conduit 
We get to solve things that are closer to the product and sort of deliver those into the product. So we get very real, tangible impact. But then we're also very much a bridge. So part of our responsibility is to keep you know fingers on what's going on in the abstract research world and try to foster basically a large innovation pipe. So I freaking love this job. Uh, it's exactly what I like to do. I like to solve hard technical problems, and then I like to ship stuff. I'm a very, um, I need tangible stuff, so I love it. And what are you working on at the moment? What's the scope of your role? What's your bailiwick? (laughs) My bailiwick is, uh, right now I'm very much focused on IRM, which is insider risk management. And so what we've been doing over the last year, so insider risk management GA'd in February of 2020, I want to say. So Ignite today is a very festive sort of one-year anniversary type thing, that with Compliance Solutions. So over this last year, what we've done a lot of is sort of uh, build a team of researchers to try to tackle these challenges that are in insider risk uh, and sort of bring the science to this brand new product. So a lot of what I'm doing on a daily basis is, on one hand, the one hand is solve some technical things and get it out there. And the other hand is build a team to strengthen the muscle, the research muscle. So let's talk a little bit more about insider risk management. Can you describe how insider risk differs from external risk and more specifically some of the risks associated with internal users? It's uh, There's some overlap, but it's a lot different than external attack. So first of all, it's very hard. I'm not saying that external attack is not hard. I, I work with a lot of those people as well. But insiders are already in, right? And they already have permissions to do stuff and they're already doing things in there. So there's not like you have a, a some perimeter that you can just camp on and try to get people when they're coming in the front door. So that makes it hard. Uh, another thing that makes it hard is the variety of risk. So different customers have different definitions of risk. So risk might be, um, we might want to protect our data. So we don't want data exfiltrated out of the company. We might want trade secrets. So we don't want people to even see stuff that they shouldn't see. We don't want workplace harassment. Uh, We don't want sabotage. We don't want people to come in and implant stuff into our code that's going to cause problems later. It's a very broad space of potential risks. And so that makes it challenging as well. And then I'd say the third thing that makes it very challenging is what I said, different customers want have different definitions of risk. So it's not like, like I like the contrast to malware detection. So we have these external security people that are trying to do all this sophisticated machine learning to have a classifier that can recognize incoming bad code, right? And sort of when they get that, like the whole industry is like, yes, we agree, that's bad code. Put it in virus total or wherever the world wants to communicate about bad code. And it's sort of all mutually agreed upon that this thing is bad. Insider risk is very different. It's, um, you know, this customer wants to monitor these things and they define risk a certain way. Uh, This customer cares about these things and they want to define risk a certain way. There is a heightened level of customer preferences that have to be brought into the the intelligence to, to detect these risks. And what does detecting one of those risks look like? So fraud or insider trading, can you walk through what a workflow would look like to detect and remediate an insider attack? Yeah, definitely. So so first of all, since it's such a broad landscape of potential damage, I guess you would say, first thing the product has to do is collect signals from a lot of different places. 
you have to collect signals about people logging in. You have to collect signals about people uploading and downloading files from a, from OneDrive. You have to you have to see what people are sharing on Teams, what people are you know emailing externally. If you want the harassment angle, you gotta you know you gotta have a harassment detector on communications. So the first thing is just this huge like data aggregation problem of this very broad set of signals. So that's one, which in my mind is a, is a very strong advantage of Microsoft to do this because we have a lot of sources of signals across all of our products. So aggregating the data, and then you need to have some detectors that can swim through that uh, and try to figure out, you know, this thing right here doesn't quite look right. I don't know necessarily that it's bad, but the customer says they care about these kind of things. So I need to surface that to the customer. So uh, techniques that we use there a lot are anomaly detection. Uh, so a lot of unsupervised type of learning just to look for strangeness. And then once we service that to the, the customer, they have to triage it, right? And they have to look at that and make a decision. Did I really, do I really want to take action on this thing, right? And so along with just the verdict, like it's probability 98% that this thing is strange, you also have to have all this explanation and context. So you have to say, why do I think this thing is strange? And then you have to pull in all these things that like, it's strange because they they moved a bunch of sensitive data around the ways they usually didn't. But then you also need to bring in other context about the user. This is very user-centric. So you have to say things like, and by the way, this person is getting ready to leave the company. That's a huge piece of context to help them be able to make a decision on this. And then once the customer decides they want to make a decision, then the product you know, facilitates uh, different workflows that you might do from that. So escalating a case to legal or to HR, there are several remediation actions that the customer can choose from. On this podcast, we've spoken with a bunch of data scientists and sort of machine learning folks who have talked about the challenge of building external detections using ML. And from what you've just explained, it sounds like you probably have some some pretty unique challenges here to give the flexibility to customers to be able to define what risk needs to them. Does that mean that you have to have a customized model built from scratch for every customer? Or can you have a sort of a global model to help with that anomaly detection that then just sort of gets customized more slightly on top based on, on preferences? I, I guess my question is, how do you utilize a tool like machine learning in a solution like this that does require so much sort of customization and, and modification by the, by the customer? That's, that's a fantastic question. So what you try to do, you scored on that one. <laughs> you try to do both, right? So customers don't want to start from scratch with any solution and build everything from the ground up, but they want customizability. So what you try to do, I always think of it as smart defaults, right? So you try to have some basic models that sort of do things that maybe the industry agrees is suspicious type, right? And you expose a few high-level knobs, like, do you care about printing? Or do you care about copying to USB? Or do you want to focus this on people that are leaving the company? Like some very high-level knobs. But you don't expose the knobs down to the level of the anomaly detection algorithm and how it's defining distance and all the features it's using to define normal behavior, but you have to design your algorithm to be able to respect those higher level choices that the that the user made. And then as far as a smart default, what you try to do is you, pre, you try to present a product where out of the box, 
like it's going to detect some things that most people agree are sort of risky and you probably want to take a look at. But you just give the you offer the ability to customize as as people want to tweak it and say, nah, that's too much. I don't like that. Or printing is no big deal for us. We do it. We're a printing house, right? Does a solution like this is it geared towards much larger organizations because they would therefore have more signal to allow you to build a high fidelity model and see where there are anomalies? So, for example, could the science of the insider risk management work? for a small, you know, multi-hundred, couple hundred person organization? Or is it sort of geared to much, much larger entities, sort of more of the size of a, of a Microsoft, where there are tens of thousands employees and therefore there's tens of thousands of types of signal and sort of volume of signal? Well, you've talked to enough scientists. I look at your guys' guest list. I mean, you know the answer, right? More data is better, right? But it's not limiting. So, of course, if you have tons and tons of employees in a rich sort of like dichotomy of roles in the company and you have all this structure around a large company, if you have all that, we can leverage it to do very powerful things. But if you just have a few hundred employees, you can still go in there and you can still say, okay, your typical employees, they have this kind of activity Weird, the one guy out of a hundred that's about ready to leave suddenly did something strange, right? Oh, you can still do that, right? So you got to make it work for all all spectrums. But more data is always better, man. Uh, More signals, more data, bring it on. Let's go. Give me some computers. Let's get this done. Spoken like a true applied scientist. So I know that you mentioned that there's a customized component to insider risk management, but when you look across all of the different customers, are you seeing any commonalities? Are there clear indicators of insider threats that most people would recognize across organizations, like seeing somebody exfiltrate X volume of data or a certain combination of indicators happening at once? I'm assuming those are probably feeding your smart defaults. Correct. So there's actually a lot of effort to go. So I I said that we're sort of a bridge between external academic type research and product research. So that's actually a large focus. And it happened in external security, too, is you get industry to sort of agree like on these threat matrices and what's the sort of agreed upon stages of attack or risk in this case. So, yeah, there are things that everybody sort of agrees like uh, this is fishy. Like, let's make this let's make this priority. So that, like you said, it feeds into the smart defaults. The same time we're trying to, you know, we don't think we know everything. So we're working with external experts. I mean, you saw past podcasts, we talked to Carnegie Mellon, uh, we talked to MITRE, we talked to these sort of industry experts to try to make this community framework or uh, language and the smart defaults. Uh, and then we try to take what we can do on top of that. So Rob, a couple of times now you've, you've talked about this scenario where an employee's potentially gearing up to leave the company and in this hypothetical situation, this is an employee that may be looking to uh, exfiltrate some, some data on their way out or something, something that falls inside the scope of, of identifying and managing uh, insider risk. I wonder, how do you determine when a user is potentially getting ready to leave the company? Is that, do you need sort of more manual signals from like an HR system because an employee might have been placed on a on a on a review in a review program or a review period, or are you actually building technology into the solution to try and see behaviors and then those behaviors in a particular sort of uh, collection in a particular shape 
lead you to believe that it could be someone getting ready to leave the company? Or is it both or something else? So quick question, Nick, what are you doing after this podcast? Yeah. Do you want a job? Because it feels like you're reading some of my notes here. <laughs> um, we, uh, uh, if you can just wait while I download these 50 gigs of files first <laughs> from this SharePoint that, that I don't normally go to, and then I just got to print everything, <laughs> and then I can talk to you about a job. No, I'm being silly. No, I mean, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. It's, uh, there are manual signals. This is the same case with, say, asset labels, like file labels, the highly sensitive stuff and not sensitive stuff. So in both cases, like, we want the clear signals. When the customers use our plugins or our compliance solution to tell us that, you know, here's an HR event that's about ready to happen, like the person's leaving, or this file is important, we are definitely going to take that and we're going to use it. But that's sort of like the scientists want to go further. Like, what about the stuff they're not labeling? Does that mean they just haven't got around to it? Or does that mean that it's really not important? Or like you just said, like, this guy is starting to email recruiters a lot. This is like, is he getting ready to leave? So there's definitely behavioral type detection and inference that uh, we're working on behind the scenes to try to augment what the users are already telling us explicitly. So what's the reality of insider risk management programs? How mature is this practice? Are folks paying attention to insider risk? Is there a gap here? Or is there still education that needs to happen? Yeah, so there has been people working on this a lot longer than I have. But I do have to say that things are escalating quickly. I mean, especially with modern workforce, right? The perimeter is destroyed and everybody's at home and it's easier to do damage, right? And risk is everywhere. But some, you know, cold hard numbers like the number of incidents are going up, but like over the last two years. But I think Gardner just came out and said in, in the last two years, the number of incidents have went up by about half. So the number of incidents are happening more, probably maybe because of the way we work now. The amount of money that people, companies are spending to address this problem is going up. Uh, I think Gardner's number was went up. The average went up several million over the last couple of years. Um, they just sort of released an insider risk survey, and more people are concerned about it. So all the metrics are pointing up, and it just makes sense with the way the world is right now. Where did sort of insider risk start? What's sort of the, the beginning of this solution? What did the sort of incubation technology look like? Where did it start? Are you able to talk to that? I mean, sure, a little bit. So this was before me. So a lot of this came out of um, DSRE, which is our, our sort of internal security team for at Microsoft, babysitting our own network. So they had to develop tools to address these very real issues. And the guys that I did a podcast with before, Talamir and, and Raman, they, um, they sort of, you know, brought this out and started making it a proper product to take all these technologies that we were using in-house and try to help turn them into a product to help other people. So it sort of organically grew out of just necessity uh, in-house. But as far as like industry, like uh, Carnegie Mellon, uh, CERT National Insider Threat Center, I think they've been uh, studying this problem for over a decade. And as a solution, as a technical solution, did it start with like sort of basic heuristics and just sort of looking for like hard-coded flags and logs? Or did it actually start out as a sort of a data science problem and, you know, with sort of basic models that have gotten more sophisticated over time. Yeah, so it did start start out with some data science at the beginning as well. Uh, so, of course, you always have the heuristics. We do that in external attack, too. Heuristics are very precise. They allow us to write down things that are very specific. They're a very, very important part of the arsenal. 
A lot of people diss on heuristics, but it's a very, very important part of the, the thing. But it also has, it started out with some data science in it. You know, the anomaly detection is a big one. Um, and so there were already some models that they brought right from uh, in-house to detect when stuff was suspicious. So what does the future of IRM look like? What are you working on next? Well, I mean, we could, you could go several ways. You know, there could be a broadness of different types of risk. The thing that I enjoy the most is sort of the more sophisticated ways of doing newer algorithms, maybe for existing charters or maybe broad charters. Uh, one thing that I'm very interested in lately is this sort of interplay between supervised learning and, and anomaly detection. So you could think of as uh, semi-supervised. That's a thing that we've actually been playing with in Microsoft for for a long time. I've had this awesome, awesome journey here. I've I've always been on teams that were sort of like, it's kind of like I've been an ML evangelist. Like I always get to the teams right when they're starting to do the really cool tech, and then I get to help usher that in. So I got to do that in the past with spam filtering when that was important. Remember when Bill Gates promised that we were going to solve spam in, in two years or whatever? Those were some of the first ML models we ever did in, in Microsoft products. And even back then, we're playing with this intersection of, you know, things look strange, but I know that certain spam looks like this. So how do you combine that sort of strangeness into sort of a semi-supervised stuff? That's the stuff that really floats my boat is how, how, do, you, how do you take this existing technology that some people think of as very different. There's unsupervised, there's supervised, uh, there's anomaly detection. How do you take that kind of stuff and get it to actually talk to each other and do something cooler than you could do on one set or the other? That's where I see the future from a technical standpoint behind the scene for smarter detectors is how we do that kind of stuff. Product roadmap, it's related to what we're, we talked about earlier about the industry agreeing on threat matrices and customers telling us what's the most important to them, that, that stuff's going to guide guide the product roadmap. Uh, but the technical piece, there's so much interesting work to do. When you're trying to make a hybrid of those different models, the unsupervised and supervised machine learning models, what are you trying to achieve? What are the benefits of each that you're trying to capture by combining them? Oh, it's the story of semi-supervised, right? I have tons and tons of data that can tell me things about the distribution of activity. I just don't have labels on a little bit of it. So how do I leverage the distributions of activity that's unlabeled with uh, things that I can learn from my few labeled examples? And how do I get those two things to make a better decision than than either way on its own? It's going to be better than training on just a few things in a supervised fashion because you don't have a lot of data with labels. So you don't want to throw away all that distributional information. But if you go over to the distributional information, then you might just detect weirdness, but you never actually get to the target, which is risky weirdness, which is two different things. Is the end goal, though, supervised learning? So if you if you have unsupervised learning with a small set of labels, can you use that small set of labels to create a larger set of labels and then ultimately get to... I'm horribly paraphrasing all this here, but is that sort of the path that you're on? So we're going to try to make the best out of the labels that we can get, right? But I don't think you ever throw away the unsupervised side because, uh, I mean, this this has come up in the external security stuff as well, is if you're always only learning how to catch the things that you've already labeled, then you're never going to really be super good at detecting brand new things that you don't have anything like it, right? So you have to have, it's sort of like the explore-exploit paradigm. 
You could think of it at a very high level. You could think of supervised as you're exploiting what you already know and you're finding stuff similar to it. But the explorer side is like, this thing's weird. I don't know what it is, but I want to show it to a person and see if they can tell me what it is. I want to see if they like that kind of stuff. Uh, that's sort of synergy. That's that's a powerful thing. What's the most sophisticated thing that the IRM solution can do? Like, have you been sort of surprised by the types of sort of anomalies that can be both detected and then sort of triaged and then flagged or even have automated actions taken? Is there is there a particular example that you think is a paramount sort of example of what, what this tech can do? Well, it's constantly increasing in complexity. First of all, anybody who's done applied science knows how hard it is to get data together. So when I work with the IRM team, first of all, I'm blown away at the level of the breadth of signals they've managed to put together into a place that we can reason over. That is such a strong thing. So that their data collection is super strong, and they're always doing more. I mean, these guys are great. If I come up with an idea and I say, hey, if we only had these signals, they'll go make it happen. It is super, super cool. As far as sophistication, I mean, you know, we start we start with heuristics, and then you start doing like very obvious anomaly detection, like, hey, this this guy just blew us out of the water by copying all these files. I mean, that's sort of the next level. And then the next level is, uh, okay, this guy's not so obvious. He tries to fly under the radar and sort of stay low and slow, but can we detect in aggregate over time he's doing a lot of damage? So those more subtle long-term risks, that's actually something we're releasing right now. Another very powerful paradigm that we're releasing right now is not just individual actions, but very precise sequences of action. So you could think of an external as kill chain, like they did this, and then they did this, and then they did this. That can be much more powerful than they did all three of those separately and then added together, if you know what I mean. So that sort of interesting sequences thing, that's a very powerful thing. And once you sort of got these frameworks up, like you can get arbitrarily sophisticated under the hood. And so it's not going to stop. Rob, you talked about working on spam detection and spam filters as previous sort of projects you were working on. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that work. And I wonder if there's any connective tissue between what you did back then and, and IRM. Yeah. So I worked on a lot more than spam. So I got hired to do spam to do a researcher on the spam team, but it quickly, uh, it was this newfangled ML stuff that we were doing, and uh, it started working on lots of different problems, if you can imagine that. And so we started working on spam detection and, and fish detection. We started working on Microsoft accounts. We would, we would look at how they behave and try to detect when it looks like suddenly they've been compromised and help people, you know, sort of lock down their accounts and get, and get protection. All those things, it's been cool to watch. We sort of, we sort of had a little incubation like science team and we would put these cool techniques on it and it would start working well. And then they've all sort of branched out into their own very mature products over the years. And they're all based very heavily on the, the sort of techniques that, that have worked along the way. It's amazing how much reuse there is. I mean, I mean, let's boil down what we do to just finding patterns and data that support a business objective. It's the same game uh, in a lot of different domains. So yes, of course, there's a lot of overlap. What was your first role at Microsoft? Have you always been in, in research and applied research? I have always been a spoiled brat. I mean, I, I just get to go work on hard problems. Uh, I don't know how I've done it, but they just keep letting me do it, and it's fun. Uh, yeah, I've always been an applied researcher. And that you said you joined about 14 years ago? Yep, yep. Yep. 
That was even back before uh, this sort of cluster machine learning stuff was hot. So we, I mean, we used to we used to take uh, lots of SQL servers and crunch data and get our features that way, and then feed it into some like single box uh, learning algorithms on small samples. And like, I've got to see this progression to like distributed learning over large clusters in-house first. We used to have a system called Cosmos in-house. Actually got to write some of the first algorithms that did machine learning on that. It was super, super rewarding. And now we have all this stuff that we release to the public and Azure's this big, huge, it's a very, very cool journey to have seen happen. Giving the listener maybe a uh, a reference point for for your entry into Microsoft, is there anything you worked on that's either still around or that people would have known? I think like just the internal Cosmos stuff is is certainly fascinating. I'm just wondering if there's a if there's a touchstone on the product side. Spam filtering for Hotmail. That was my first gig. Nice. I I cut my teeth on Hotmail. Yeah, yeah I was a yeah. Hotmail guy. I was working in the Hotmail team as we transitioned to Outlook.com, and I was mm-hmm. uh, down in. Palo Alto, I can't remember, somewhere, wherever the Silicon Valley campus is. SBC. We were all in like a board, a boardroom waiting for the new domain to go live and we got like a 15-minute heads up. So I'm just nick at outlook.com. That's, that's my email address. And I got, I got my wife, her first name at outlook.com. Were you there for that, Rob? Do you have a, did you get a super secret email address? I was not there for the release, but as soon as it was out, I went and grabbed some for my kids. So I keep my Hotmail one because I've had it forever, but uh, I got all my kids like the the ones they needed. So it's amazing how much stuff came out of that, that service right there. So I talked about identity management that we do for Microsoft accounts now. I mean, that stuff came from trying to protect people, their Hotmail accounts. So we would build models to try to determine like, oh, this guy's suddenly emailing a bunch of people that he doesn't usually, anomaly detection, if you can imagine, right? The same thing works. All that stuff, and then it sort of grew in, and then Microsoft had a bigger account, and then that team's kind of like, hey, you guys are doing this ML to detect account compromise. Can you come like, do some of that over here? And then it grew out to what it is today. A lot of things came from the ML days. It's very fun. Thinking of the different policies organizations have and the growing awareness of those policies, over time, employees are going to shift their tactics. Like you said, there are some who are already doing low and slow activities that are evading detection. So how do you think this is going to impact the way you try to tackle these challenges? Or have you already noticed people try to subvert the policies that are in place? Yeah, so that's the that's the next frontier, which is, you know, why I said we start just getting into like the low and slow stuff. It's going to be like all other security. It's going to be, these guys are watching this thing. I got to try something different. Actually, that's a good motivation for the sort of the high level approach we're taking, which is tons of signals. So there's not very many activities you could do. You could print, copy to USB. You could upload to something. You could get a third-party app that does the uploading for you. There's not very many avenues that you could do that we're not going to be able to at least see that happening. So you couple that with some, that mountain of data with some algorithm that can try to pick out this is a strange thing and this is in the context of somebody leaving. It's going to be an interesting cat and mouse, that's for sure. Do you have any examples of places where you've already had to shift tactics because you're noticing a user try to subvert the existing policies? Or are you still in the exploration phase trying to figure out what really, what this is really going to look like next? So right now, I don't think we've had we haven't got to the phase yet where we're affecting people a lot. 
this is very early product. We're a year in. So I don't see the reactions yet, but I, I guarantee it's going to happen. And then we're going to learn from that. And we're going to say, okay, I have the Explorer exploit going. The Explorer just told me that something strange that i never seen before happened. We're going to put some people on that that are experts to figure out what that's going to be. We're going to figure out how to bring that into the fold of agreed upon bad stuff. So we're going to expand this threat matrix, right, as we go along. And we're going to keep exploring. And that's the same for every single security product. Rob, as someone that's been able to sort of come into different teams and, and different solutions and, and help them, as you say, sort of bring more academic or theoretical research into, into product, what techniques are you keeping your eye on? Like what's, what's coming in the next two or three years? Maybe not necessarily for IRM, maybe just in terms of as machine learning, as sort of AI techniques are, are evolving and, and, and sort of getting more and more mature. Like wh- where are you excited? What are you, what are you looking at? So you want the secret sauce is what you're asking for. That's exactly what I want. I want the secret sauce. <laughs> um, well, I mean, there's two schools of thought. There's one school of thought, which is you better keep your finger on the pulse because the the new up-and-comers, the whippersnappers, are going to bring you some really cool, cool stuff. And then there's the other school of thought, which is everything they've brought in the last 10 years is a slight change of what they was before the previous. It's a cycle, right? As with it, Science's refinement of existing ideas. So... I'm a very muted person that way and that I don't latch on to the next latest and greatest big thing, um, but I do love to see progress. I just see it as more of a multifaceted, gradual rise of mankind's pattern recognition ability, right? Things that excite me are things that deal with like big data with big labels Super, super cool stuff happening there. I mean, you know, who doesn't like the word deep learning or have used it? What's a big label? Is there a small label? <laughs> I mean, lots of labeled data. Like, uh, okay. Yes. Big data sets, lots of labels. Yes. That stuff, um, that's exciting. There's a lot of cool stuff we couldn't do two decades ago that are happening right now. And that's very, very powerful. But a lot of the business problems in security, especially because we're trying to always get this new thing that the bad guys are doing that we haven't seen before, it's very scarce label-wise. And so the things that excite me are how you inject domain knowledge, right? I talked about we want customers to be able to sort of control some knobs that you like focus the thing on what they think is important. But it also happens with security analysts because there's a lot of very smart people that I get to work with and they have very broad domain knowledge about what risks look like and various forms of security. How do you get these machines to listen to them more than them just being a label machine? How do you embed that domain knowledge into there? So there's a lot of cool stuff happening uh, in that space. Weak learning is one that's very popular. Came out of Stanford, actually. But I'm very, I'm very, very excited about what we can do with one shot or weak supervision or very scarce labeled examples. I think that's a very, very powerful paradigm. Doing more with less. That's right. And transfer learning. I'm sure you guys have talked to a lot of people about that. That's another one. A lot of things we do in IRM, well, and lots of security is you try to like leverage labeled uh, supervised classification, like think about HR events. So maybe I could don't have a, a bunch of labeled, these are IRM incidents that I can train this big supervised classifier on. 
But what I can do is I can get a bunch more HR events and I can learn things, like you said, that predict that an HR event is probably happening, right? And I chose that HR event because that's correlated with the label I care about, right? So I can use all that supervised machinery to try to predict that proxy thing. And then I can try to use what it learned to get me to what I really want with maybe less labels. Got it. My final IRM question is, from what I know about IRM, it feels like it's about protecting the organization from an employee who may maliciously or accidentally do something they're not meant to do. And we've used the example of an employee getting ready to leave the company. What about, though, IRM as a tool to spot well-meaning but but practices that that expose the company to risk. So instead of like looking for the employee that's about to leave and exfil 50 gigs of cat meme data that they shouldn't, what about like just using it to identify, you know what, this team's just sort of got some sloppy practices here that's sort of opening us for risk. We can use the IRM tool to go and find the groups that need the sort of the extra training and to need to sort of bring them up to scratch. And so it's almost more of a, um, just thinking of it more in sort of a positive reinforcement sense as opposed to sort of an avoiding a negative consequence. Is that a big function of IRM? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sorry if I didn't uh, communicate that well, but IRM is definitely intentional and unintentional. And, and some of the workflows, the way you can do when we detect risky activity is just send an email to the uh, to the employee and say, hey, this behavior is risky, change your ways, please, right? So you're right, it's, it can be a coaching tool as well. It's not just data's going to leave, right? Intentionally. Got it. You've been very generous. This has been a great conversation. I wondered, before you leave us, do you have anything you would like to plug? Do you have a blog? Do you have a Twitter? Is there a, a, another podcast? Which one were you on, Rob? Uncovering Hidden Risk. I would also like to point you guys to uh, an Insider Risk blog. I mean, we, we publish a lot on, on what's coming out and where the product is headed. So it's aka.ms slash blog. That's a great place to sort of keep abreast on the technologies and, and where we want to go. That sounds good. Well, Rob McCann, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, we'll have to have you back on at some point in the future to learn more about weak learning and other, other sort of uh, cool new techniques you hinted at. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at msftsecurity or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia, be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.